Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to the market conversation with Ben Laidler, global market strategist at eToro. Ben, in your work, we see some hope this bond route may be easing. This is a key ingredient for any equity recovery. Before we get to talking about whether this is positive or not for risk assets, can you tell me why you think bond yields may well be peaking this time? I think it's difficult to see real yields just continuing to head to the moon at a time when all your inflation lead indicators are rolling over, where recession risks... Uh, are, are spiking. Um, I, I, I think it, the disconnect is, is, is in there. And I think given where real and nominal yields got to, and on the flip side, given where valuations and sentiment have got to, I think that risk-reward setup is, is very, very interesting. Ben, given that, if the Fed is going to retrace some of its uh, pretty hawkish statements, what does that mean in terms of earnings? We've heard this from Mike Wilson. We've heard this from Mohamed el that be careful what you wish for, because if the Fed does retrace, that means that things are really bad and we have not priced that in. I think this is too early a comment. This feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, right? I think the setup is very similar to where we were before the big sort of June rally. Uh, I think the market is sniffing out the sort of top of the Fed cycle. I think bond yields have um, overshot and are now coming down. Uh, and I think, to your point on earnings, we're going into third quarter earnings season where, yet again, expectations are very, very negative. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is an attractive setup. I think, my, I think we're just going to leap over this sort of yeah. low bar and breathe a little bit of, of a sigh of relief. Ben, I want to go to your huge track record on three cycles of getting the market right. And I want to go to Lisa's gloom yesterday. I want to go to nodes of revenue guesses. What it comes <laughs> down to is with a slowing economy, everybody's going to try to guess revenues at the top line. Given all the economic mumbo, John, what are the nodes of revenue guesses going to do? I think this is all sort of fear versus reality. I think markets, I mean, we're down 25%. Earnings expectations have actually fallen quite a lot, I would argue. Um, and not all recessions are created equal. I mean, granted, we're almost certainly going into a recession, at least outside of Asia. Um, but this is not 2007. This is not 2020. This is, a, I think, a much more plain vanilla, uh, central bank-driven recession. And I think that is, given where we are, I think that's actually pretty investable. That's a two percentage point GDP peak to trough for. That's a 14% decline in earnings expectations, where I think you're at least uh, halfway there. Um, again, I think where markets and sentiment and valuations are at this point, I think the bigger risk 
is, is being out, not, is, sorry, is, is being out, not in. Okay, so Ben, given all of that, just quickly here, how much are you buying with your conviction? I mean, basically, are you loading up the truck? I think we're building a bottom, right? I, I think this is a U-shaped recovery, not a V. Uh, I think the Fed has told us quite clearly that, you know, they're going to stay the course until something breaks. Well, hey, stuff may be starting, uh, be starting to break. Uh, we don't need the top of the Fed cycle. We just need a little bit of visibility uh, that it may be coming in the next sort of four or five months. And the Fed's just not going to keep uh, hiking here. I think all the lead indicators uh, are, are telling that. So I'm comfortable enough saying we're building a bottom. So I'm fully invested. I'm, I'm certainly tilted a bit more to the defensives. You know, risks are still pretty high. But I'm absolutely nibbling at that sort of quality risk, that sort of big tech, you know, discounted small caps. I mean, the more this goes on, the closer we get to inflation definitively coming down. Um, I think you want to be you're raising the risk budget into that. Ben Laidler, thank you, sir. Avi Toro. I think Jordan Rochester would probably get on me. Birmingham? Birmingham. I did okay. And Jordan's a hometown boy from, right. from Birmingham, yeah. Jordan Rochester joins us now from Birmingham right now, G10FX Strategy. At Nomura. Jordan, I want to go to the news of the day, which is the uh, the Bank of Australia blinked. There's no question about that. Maybe it's a new trend. Maybe it's not. If the banks start blinking like they did in Canberra, is that? Canberra. Canberra. And Canberra, what does that mean for foreign exchange? What does that mean for your call on the dollar? I think that's everything, Tom. Are we going to have more central banks blink? When it comes to the RBA, it stands out as one of the central banks with a mortgage market where most mortgages are variable, they're floating. So they do react to what's happening in rates markets today, in those housing markets for everybody, not just the marginal house purchaser. Where in the US with 10-year, 30-year fixes, in the UK with two and five, in Europe with 10-year fixes, the impact of these rate hikes come through with a different lag. In the UK, it's faster. In the US, it's much slower. And of course, the marginal buyer sets the price. So in even, even in the US, your, your last guest was talking about the slowdown in house prices. But I think when it comes to the Fed, when it comes to other central banks, they're still going to be looking at inflation nowhere near their targets. But what's going on right now in markets is people are asking the question, oh, are we going to listen to what the Bank of England experienced last week? Will the Fed, will the ECB think twice about what they're doing just in case we have a financial contagion risk that's building up with rates moving as quickly as they are? So I think right now it's all about mood music rather than actual action from anyone like the Fed or the ECB. I think central banks will still be hawkish. Inflation will still be stronger than they want. But right now we're in that sort of quiet space where we're all thinking is the UK and is the RBA, are they both canary in the coal mine sort of situation? Jordan, I sense you're sceptical. So are you fading this move? Is that what you're recommending to clients? I, I think, I mean, you mentioned a 10% move and rule 101, and I kind of broke that, is don't chase flash crashes. And basically that's what we had in Sterling after the mini budget, huge moves, 5% moves lower. Typically, when you have that, everybody gets very convinced it's the right trade, becomes very consensus, and then policymakers react, and then you have mean reversion on that reaction. And that's what's happened. But in the UK's case, the reaction's been really timid. So just reducing the top rate tax from the 45 pence tax costs nothing, really. It's £2 billion. We're talking £100 billion for the energy package overall over its lifetime. So this £2 billion is a rounding error for the uh, for fiscal sustainability. So for me, this is all about mood music. The UK is showing that perhaps they're not going to be as zealous when it comes to fiscal policymaking. Mm -hmm. But for, if you take the facts as they are, 
everything's the same apart from that two billion pound of spending. So I am skeptical, John. And I also think core inflation in the US will remain stickier than what all of our leading indicators for headline inflation signals. Because commodity prices are softer, everyone says peak inflation. I agree with that. But core inflation will be stronger than you think. Because look at job openings in the US. They're just ridiculously high. And they're not falling enough to say that we're having a weaker labor market. So this all feeds into the Fed not being happy where things are. And this this softness in US yields, I don't think it will last. So, Jordan, we were talking to Tom Sussouris of Strategus, a Baird company, earlier, and he was talking about how the the price action that you've seen in 10-year treasuries and two-year treasuries indicates stability, indicates price discovery in a way that we have not seen in years. Is the same true for your FX market, with the pound rallying 10% off of an incredible swoon? I think most of that is poor liquidity, uh, positioning in sterling being very one-way, and then we had the rebalancing of month end. And we've got to remember as well, this pension situation meant that the amount of flows going through in the UK were huge. So it's kind of hard to say that, is this a fundamental price discovery that's going on? Or is this just everybody being one way and pensions being bailed out by the Bank of England's QE program, which comes to an end in less than two weeks. So we have to watch out for that cliff edge. What happens well, to the UK rates market on that, once that QE program comes to an end? I think price discovery is still in, in, in effect. Uh, the US has everything the world needs. It has oil, it has LNG exports. The Europeans don't have either of those things. And a key difference, when they imported that natural gas from Russia, it was priced in euros, not anymore. It's in LNG, it's in dollars. So there's a fundamental terms of trade shift that points yeah. to euro being at 90 cents by the end of this year. Jordan, let me make clear, and I'm not trying to sell Nomura on this, but when the LDI uh, scandal was breaking, I used a Nomura research report from 2018. Jordan, it was scary accurate about what the mess would be in the British pension uh, market. Jordan, where's the trade opportunity right now? I mean, where, where's the big figure opportunity right now, everything considered? I think where we are today, I think we've got this dollar softness thanks to lower US yields. It's backed up by mood music, the ISM being weaker, potential for China having this marathon and masks being taken off that marathon. All kind of mood music stuff, not fundamental game changers. We've got NFP coming up on Friday. I suspect we'll have a strong average hourly earnings number. I think the jobs data will, will still hold up the growth on that side. So I think folks will be surprised again by US jobs not slowing down as they expect from all the growth signals we have. And then we've got CPI the week after. So I think really the, the, the trade is to fade this dollar weakness. Um, it looks like everything we saw in May, it looks at what we saw in August. We had these kind of big drawdowns in the long dollar trade, but the trend is still there. So euro to 90, cable to parity <clears throat> and below. Jordan, can you just congratulate Tom for saying Birmingham and not Birmingham? I'm working. I'm working. We've been working on this, Jordan. Working on it. <laughs> right. Next is the Brummie accent, so if he can say, yeah. good right, mate. It'll be, go. be, be I, I want to go up to You've the Plough in Harborn and have a true full full English. That, that the full was, English up there is different. That, that was an authentic Brummie accent you it got was, just then. It was, very authentic. From Jordan Rochester of Memora. Jordan, thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. 
Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, she has one of the greatest parchment streams in the United Kingdom from Edinburgh to London School of Economics with real expertise on China. The chief economist, T.S. Lombard, Freya Bamish, joins us right now. Freya, just to start, are we in global recession? I think we're heading that way. I don't think we're quite there in the U.S. China's probably coming uh, out of its recession, but still very weak and not coming, not really going to get its uh, reopening boost until H1 of, of next year. The, the real problem is is Europe, and I think this is this is um, what's what's moving markets at the moment as well. That there's something much wider going on here mm-hmm. than just the kind of the the if I can use the term slightly cack-handed um, delivery of the, um, of, the, of the fiscal policy response in, in the UK. I look for you at the news flow, and clearly Australia blinking is important. What are the ramifications for other central banks, including ECB, that RBA just decides enough? Yeah, I think what's happening here is that there's there's a, a global shift towards a higher returns environment, but you can't get there all in one go. Um, the the real economy just can't can't handle it, and there are these sort of powder kegs of um, financial accelerators that have been left behind by the period of, of low yields in in the 2010s. So trying to get from the 2010s level of yields to uh, a pre-global financial crisis level of yields, which is where we think we ultimately will be ending up over the 2020s. Um, trying to do that in one mini cycle, which is the, the COVID cycle, is, is just too much for the real economy and for, and for financial markets. So I think what we start to see now is that QE comes back in in a very different guise from how it did in the 2010s. It's much more of the sort of the budget response um, to try to provide liquidity um, where necessary in order to prevent yields from rising more rapidly rapidly rather than to try to keep yields from from shifting lower and i think the underlying forces here are, are much much wider than um, than the kind of the, the the narrative at least around the the uk um, suggests what's what's happening here is that there's been a redirection of funds in favor of, of the energy firms uh, in, in favor of of, um, of uh, russia really and um, and the the non-fossil fuel firms and what that does is you're you're handing funds to uh, companies and countries that are much more likely to want to invest them than they were in the in the the recipients of those funds in in the in the 2010s well Fred, and in that process you're dragging yields higher there's a lot there and i want to just hone in on one thing that you said the quantitative easing this time around is going to look very different does that mean that you mm-hmm. think that quantitative tightening is over and then we're entering a new quantitative easing cycle of trying to reduce the pace of bond yield, yield increases 
I think in as far as the UK goes, yes, I would say that the quantitative easing is is um sort of dead before it gets off the off the ground. Yeah, the the yeah quantitative tightening. Thank you. Um, the quantitative tightening just doesn't doesn't really get off the ground. That you get this kind of QE that is is not the the same flavor as the as the 2010s, and it's there to to prevent yields from rising too too rapidly. Um, and that that is is probably the case for for Europe as well, where we're if anything more worried than we are about um, about the UK, um, with Germany already having suggested that they're going to go it alone on the on the fiscal front. Um, where does that leave countries like? Like, like Italy, um, where we'd be much more worried about those kind of structural issues starting to to, to re-arise in the euro area. Therefore, you get the move back to the to the TPI, which can very easily translate into something similar to, to what the, the Bank of England is doing with regards to its kind of short-term new flavor QE. Um, so it's a very different flavor of, of monetary policy since since the um, since the 2010s. How much is this a European story and how much is this a global story? I mean, Tom was talking about the RBA blinking, raising just 25 basis points rather than a bigger rate hike that was expected overnight. How much is this the example rather than a story of specific nations facing specific inflationary pressures? I think there are now so many different idiosyncratic problems that are arising at the same time that we can say that something systemic is actually going on. Um, the, the the European trouble, Europe is, is definitely at the center of this. I would definitely point out um, problems in, in China that can arise perhaps not till after the reopening, so therefore into the second half of, of, um, of next year, but I would definitely point that out as, as structural turning points for, for China as well. And I think because of, of this kind of updraw in, in yields, that, that fiscal authorities are very much um, are very much leaning against. You've got this battle for for funds that really speaks to the longer term secular trends that have just been sort of fast forwarded by this energy energy shock. That deterioration of of the geopolitical environment and the natural environment. These are all factors that are kind of nasty cost push for inflation factors that that speak to um, the need for higher returns and the, the likelihood of higher returns in the in the 2020s. And we're just seeing the fast forwarding of that in the in the short term. But I think it does lead to to capitulation from central banks first in the form of pushing back against the, the financial accelerators, as we've seen in the in the UK in the pension funds fiasco. But then in the case of Europe, um, as a result of the, the, the slowdown in, in growth, yes, governments are, are supporting um, the, their economies through fiscal spending. But that the cost of doing that, there's no free lunch. The cost of doing that is that yields are much higher. So you're getting the spending on energy, but it's happening at a higher higher yield. Yields and therefore the the property market in the UK and and, the, and yields more broadly um, are starting to tighten financial conditions and, and tamp down on growth in in that ma in that uh, fashion. So central banks turn from um, worrying about inflation um, in Europe to worrying about um, to worrying about the financial accelerators and then growth. Um, and, and therefore you get the capitulation in that sense. I think in the US right. we are in a very different position here because inflation is more embedded um, and therefore the, the, the policy well, response has to be still focused on inflation. And this is the heritage of T.S. Lombard, Freya. I mean, model out how they get to 2% given that a huge body of people say that's an impossible event. Do you just assume they get to 5% or 4% and then recalibrate? I think that's 
probably where we're getting too further down the line that, that they will eventually explicitly or implicitly revert um, inflation uh, inflation targets higher um, just because there are so many secular forces that are pointing in, in favor of higher inflation and not all of them being kind of cost push inflation. There's also this change in the relationship in global mar labor markets um, and credit uh, as well that, that suggests that China is no longer a cap on, on wage growth in, in developed markets. Therefore, you have faster wage growth. You also have faster faster credit growth, and both of those things are inflationary. So leaning against that means it's, you're kind of accepting this politically unacceptable um, yeah. idea of, of a much higher unemployment rate in order to get inflation back down again. Um, but I think in the shorter term with the Fed, the, the, the point that I would get across is that, that there's there's too much reliance on, on leading indicators that are simply monitoring what the costs are doing, and that the demand supply imbalance in, in, um, in, in the US, both in terms of the, the goods market still, both in terms of the labor market, um, is still great enough that you've got this underlying heat in the in demand in the in the economy. Um, and therefore, while, while the rest of the world has good prospects for a slowdown in inflation, I'm still worried that you get upside surprises in, in inflation in the US because margins um, have the, have greater room to expand on the back of, of demand still remaining relatively strong. So we're very much looking out for that US recession coming through because that's the, the kind of the key the key turning point for the Fed. But it doesn't seem like we're quite there yet. Fred, thank you for being with us this morning. Fred Beamish of TS Lombard, just absolutely brilliant. It is October, which means we must speak with Paul just Sankey, founder it. and lead analyst at Sankey Research, who's ignoring this conversation. Paul Sankey has decades of experience in oil and knows in October there is Vienna, and there's also Park Lane, a string of hotels in London where the elite meet to greet in the oil community as they do beginning today. It is the, well, the energy executive of the year is from Qatar. We'll pass on that, but far more CEOs together and the rest. Paul, is a consensus opinion that oil will rise back into the hundreds? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first consensus is that we'll get a million barrel a day cut from OPEC tomorrow. And what people here are saying will be a brief meeting. I was told that the decision's already taken. I was actually hoping that they would take some time uh, and argue a bit so I'd get a chance to get out to Vienna towards the end of the week. But evidently, the decision will come tomorrow. Uh, that should be, I think, a million barrel a day cut. We've got about half of that probably, Tom, actually delivered. But it's still enough to tighten what's effectively a market imbalance uh, in Q4. So any cut will effectively serve to raise prices. The elite meet to greet at the Intercontinental Hotel or at the Dorchester with umbrellas in their drink. But is it just about Saudi Arabia, Arabia and Russia? Well, I have to say I've got to wear a black tie tonight for the for the award dinner. Tom, I need your help with the uh, bow tie there. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, we had, we had the CEO of Aramco talking uh, very eloquently. Ben Van Burden of Shell also very eloquent. Um, we had protesters outside the Intercontinental uh, yelling in my ear as I walked in. But the problem is the protesters don't really have a coherent solution. Uh, in fact, nobody does. And, and that's, that's one of the issues. A couple of interesting points from Shell, for instance. He said that uh, this quarter alone, China is adding more coal uh, production uh, than the, the entirety of Shell's energy production. So essentially in one quarter, China grows coal by the entire size of Shell. And uh, again, talking about the CEO of Aramco, again, talking about lack of spare capacity, 
and how demand is remaining strong. Well, so again, further to your first question, it's all pointing towards higher prices, basically. And that's really the crux of the matter. How much is this potential cut of a million barrels really an issue of a lack of capacity rather than the appearance of lack of demand? And how much pushback will OPEC Plus get from the United States, from Europe, saying we need lower prices at this point to stave off a crisis? Why are you effectively causing a, a, an increase in prices or potentially laying the groundwork for that going forward. Well, Lizzie made a great point, um, which I'll come back to. But firstly, I think the Saudis have enjoyed $100 oil and, you know, would rather we were closer to 100 than to 80. So that's point one. Point two that you made is that they're so tight on spare capacity that they may well feel that, you know, to rest their fields a bit, to give themselves some more breathing room, a cut is, is a good thing. The outside chance was that there'd be a major quota renegotiation, but it doesn't sound like that's happening. These guys are still using 2018 quotas, which are just completely nonsensical now in terms of things like Nigeria and Angola, just not even close to their quotas. But I don't think there's going to be that kind of agreement. I think it'll be a, a pretty strong cut decision led by Saudi UAE. 15-minute meeting. With, of course, we've got Paul the other interests. We've got Russia. 15 minutes or more for this meeting. Uh, more than 15, I think, uh, you know, those ones were, were just rubber stamps. But uh, it, it may be, I think, well, I was, again, I was hoping it would be, it would take longer than, than a day and, and roll into Thursday, Friday. It sounds like we'll get a decision tomorrow. And before the markets in the US tomorrow, yeah, could be. There we go. Paul Sankey, thank you, sir. Good to see you. Paul Sankey there of Sankey Research. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.